across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. There's a kind of normality descending on the week today, isn't there? The roads are still quite busy, the supermarkets are full of people, the politicians are still spouting uh, their version of the truth. Some of them speak the truth, some of them uh, slightly less so. And we're all still here wondering where it is all going to end. Yesterday, after hearing that the lockdown was beginning to have an effect on the coronavirus, the government announced that more than 1,600 people died. And that, I'm afraid, is a new record. Please draw your own conclusions. And despite March the 8th uh, being mooted as a possible date for the lifting of restrictions once millions more have been vaccinated, that date has now been consigned to the dustbin of history. And it was only announced on Monday, by the way. Uh, There's now a new date, and that would appear to be April the 2nd. Now, I've done a little bit of uh, mathematics in my head, and I make that 72 days from now. 72 days. That's quite a long time to be waiting for a bus, quite a long time to be waiting for a train, quite a long time to be waiting to get your freedoms back. We'll be speaking uh, coming up uh, to Tory MP Paul Bristow. Uh, He's the MP for Peterborough. Uh, He will be giving us his version uh, of events and his view on what we should be doing. The roadmap appears to be getting bigger and bigger as you fold it out in the car. Uh, It seems to be like taking over the entire dashboard, uh, if you get my meaning. Now they're saying the vaccine might not actually protect people as well as they thought. For heaven's sake, does anyone out there know how to play this game? Uh, As Jimmy Breslin once said, the famous New York writer. Uh, Coming up, of course, we've got Prime Minister's questions as well uh, at midday, where Sir Keir Starmer will no doubt attempt to blame Boris Johnson for absolutely everything. Coming up, we'll also be going live to Washington, where President Joe Biden will be sworn in live on talk radio this very afternoon. There's already a chorus of how great the world is going to be now that Donald Trump has gone. But just remember this. When Joe Biden was last in the White House, the administration bombed seven different countries. Here's the list. Afghanistan, Pakistan, Libya, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, 26,171 bombs in 2016 alone. Good luck, world. He's the saviour. 0344-499-1000. Neil Oliver joins us later on as well with his take on where we are right now, how much the lockdown is damaging both the young and the old. And we'll be asking Annabelle Denham just how much longer can the BBC survive with its licence fee model as more and more people desert it uh, for streaming services. And as ever, of course, we want to hear from you. You're the voice uh, of the people. You are the common sense that we lead on this show. We want to know what you're seeing, what you're hearing and what you're being told as well. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, let us, without further ado, say a very good morning to Paul Bristow, Conservative MP for Peterborough. Paul, a very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for waiting patiently. We came to you slightly later than we meant to because I was busy explaining to Julie Hartley Brewer that Joe Biden, despite what Theresa May may think, uh, may not be the peacemaker and the saviour of the world that everybody makes him out to be. Yeah, well, um, I I uh, appreciate and understand that. But look, our relationship with uh, America, whoever's president, is an incredibly important one. And we need to make sure that we're close to those in the White House. And I sincerely hope that our relationship will be as strong as ever and we can be continue to be a force of good in the world 
uh, with our oldest and uh, most closest political friends. No, listen, I'm absolutely sure of it. I mean, I've got very close ties to the United States of America. I've got a son that lives in California. I've got a sister that lives in uh, New York. I've got a mother that lives in Connecticut. So I'm very highly uh, uh, in favour of being very friendly with the United States of America. I just get slightly miffed when I hear people like Lisa Nandy banging on about how, you know, Boris Johnson has betrayed confidences and has supported Donald Trump to the detriment of our relationship. It's all absolute and utter political nonsense. And I wish people would stop it. Well, I think it's the job of the Prime Minister to have a strong relationship, a friendly relationship with whoever is uh, President of the United States. And I think that open and honest relationship between the UK Prime Minister and the President is 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 important. You know, they will have serious discussions in private, as I would imagine Boris did with, with Donald Trump. But when they're on the the uh, the lawn of the White House when they're dealing with uh, the world together as it is they're gonna they're gonna be close and they're gonna talk in warm words so it's, I think it's really unhelpful for the opposition to start um, questioning the relationship between the Prime Minister and the President yeah uh, it, it's going to be a close relationship the UK and the United States are friends yeah of course they are and and there's nothing to suggest that anything other than that would be the case but it is a bit baffling this morning to pick up the Daily Mail to see Theresa May a former Prime Minister of this country um, very well connected in the Tory Party. Not an incredibly successful prime minister, you'd have to say. They're talking about Boris Johnson's moral failure and why strong leadership is important. Well, I don't remember much strong leadership coming from her when she was trying to negotiate the Brexit deal. Well, it will come no surprise that I don't agree with uh, Theresa May. I think Boris Johnson has actually done very well when it comes to statecraft and when it comes to appearing on the international stage. Mm. Uh, he was, of course, her foreign secretary. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, that's an important thing to, to remember. And look, you know, Boris got Brexit done and that was the biggest foreign policy challenge we had. Uh, we've got a trade agreement. We've left the European Union. I think that's a record to be proud of. I think it's absolutely true. I mean, I think Boris has taken quite rightly a lot of criticism for the way that the pandemic has played has panned out. Not all of it has been his fault, but he perhaps could have behaved slightly differently and done things differently. I'm not one of those that criticises him for what he did at the beginning, uh, but I am one of those who would like to see a proper roadmap out of here, uh, which we'll talk about in a moment. But I think it's unfair uh, not to give him credit for Brexit because he did uh, get elected on the platform of getting Brexit done. Nobody thought he would get it done and he has got it done. And I think that's, that's a very laudable thing. Well, that's right, Mike. Lots of people wrote the Prime Minister off, wrote Boris off, put his chances of getting a Brexit deal um, as extremely unlikely. Uh, and he delivered. He got uh, the uh, withdrawal agreement through. He uh, managed to win uh, an election, which managed to get the Conservative Party its majority so it can get Brexit done. And of course, he managed to uh, negotiate with the European Union the trade deal we have at the moment. And yes. that's a record I think he could be proud of. And I think we should also bang the British drum a little bit more. I noticed that you're one of those that does that. Peterborough uh, Telegraph piece that you just retweeted the other day. Multi-million pound partnership announced to build research centre at Peterborough University. Now, I seem to remember uh, in those dark days when we spent hours and hours sitting in the tent of common sense on College Green trying to make sense of it all. Uh, people were telling us that there was going to be a brain drain, there was going to be no research money anymore for British science, that everything was going to go to hell in a handcart. And that's absolutely not the case. And I think we could do more to show people and to tell people how much more successfully Britain is now doing. 
Mike, I completely agree with you there. I'm sick to death of people talking down this country. We've got some great businesses in this country, yeah. exporting great products all around the world. And in Peterborough, that's no difference. We're going to bring back engineering and manufacturing and technology and highly paid jobs back to our city centre in Peterborough. And that's why I always talk about being proud of Peterborough and, and trying to talk my city up. Because if we don't talk our own country up yeah. and our own chances up, we don't talk our own my own city up, well, then who else is going to do that? But that's the trouble, isn't it? We have this kind of uh, morass of people in this country who seem to want Brexit to fail, who seem to want our economy to fail, uh, just so that they can stand there pointing, going, no, I told you that would happen. And I think that's just so negative. And we don't need that in politics at the moment. Britain's a huge force for good in the world. And do you know something? It's uh, our friends and neighbours across the world. You know, I'm also the chair of the all-party parliamentary group on Kansuk, and mm. that's uh, a group that campaigns for closer relationships between Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK. And it's our friends there that want Brexit to succeed and want us to be a power for good in the world again when it comes to trade uh, and all sorts of other things instead of hiding behind the European Union. We're back out there in the in the world. We can be that force for good, as I, as I say. And it's time to be proud to be British and, and proud of our potential. Absolutely. And, and when you talk about the European Union, let's look at the vaccination records of the two groups and uh, British, uh, the British Isles far and away uh, more efficient at getting the vaccine rolled out than anywhere in Europe. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, we've uh, got 4.7 million uh, jabs into 4.2 million arms. It's not, uh, I don't want to be triumphant about what's happening because it's incredibly serious. Our NHS is under pressure and uh, people are dying in, in, in large numbers. But the light at the end of the tunnel is this vaccination programme. It's been a, a tremendous success. We've managed to get it earlier than any other European country. We've uh, vaccinated more than the rest of the European Union uh, or the, the European Union, sorry, not the rest, because we're no longer members of the European Union, the European Union put together. And that's something to be incredibly proud of. I don't want to see, wish ill on other European countries. I hope their vaccination programmes ramp up and they manage to protect their populations because that's good for us as well. But I'm just, uh, I'm positive about what we have achieved so far and I hope we can meet the numbers we've, the government have uh, suggested we will by the middle of February. No, you're absolutely right, Paul. It's not about being triumphalist. That's not what I mean. And I, that's the trouble as well, isn't it? Because people paint people in certain ways. You know, like if you're a supporter of Brexit, you know, you must be some kind of idiotic racist uh, who doesn't have any kind of understanding of the modern world, which is globalist, right? Uh, similarly, if you don't agree necessarily that lockdown and only lockdown will get us out of this mess without giving any sort of uh, um, uh, sucker and comfort to those people who are suffering, not because of COVID, but because of the lockdown, that you're somehow heartless and you don't care about letting the virus rip. You know, there's all these kind of absolutes, it seems to me now in politics, which I think we could do with watering down slightly. Well, I agree with you, Mike. It's not black and white. There are shades of grey. And I think this partisan uh, way sometimes politics is divine, defined is, is unhelpful. The last thing I think I would be as a firm Brexiteer is a, is a little Englander or yeah. someone who wants Britain to retreat. As I said to you, I'm the chairman of the all-party parliamentary group on Kamsuk. I want closer relationships with those historical countries. I've got a, a huge um, Pakistani Kashmiri population in Peterborough. They've done a great deal of good for, for my city. Uh, and I want to see as firm relationships with um, former Commonwealth countries like uh, like Pakistan. I think that would be an incredibly positive thing for that country and our own country. Yeah. The idea that we're little Englanders because we support Brexit is completely wrong. It is completely and that's a nonsense. Let's talk a little bit about where we are currently uh, economy-wise because you talked about you know bringing uh, riches back to this country, bringing prosperity back to the high street. I mean, it looks a long way off at the moment 
moment. Only the beginning of this week, we were hearing from uh, Dominic Raab that possibly March the 8th might be a date at which we could start to look at lifting uh, restrictions. That seems to have now already moved. It's only Wednesday uh, to April 2nd. And I appreciate it's difficult. But I think, as Julia Hartley Brewer has been uh, illustrating on her show, there's an awful lot of people out there suffering in my view, needlessly, um, because of things like healthcare problems, because of their inability to get appointments to get things fixed that they need fixed or their parents need fixed, people who try to run businesses who are incapable of doing so. You know, we really need to get a proper plan here, don't we? Well, I think there's an element of uh, the government probably not wanting to look like they're under-delivering. And there are still lots of variables out there about um, whether the, the vaccination programme... Um, well, I think the vaccination programme will reach um, the point it needs to in, in mid-February. Yeah. Um, but there are other kind of complexities and, and, and variables out there. And uh, it's whether the NHS... Um, we can deal with that backlog um, once we've uh, vaccinated those, those most vulnerable. And I think the government are just trying to manage expectations. But I want to see a plan. I want to see us open up as quickly as possible. Uh, and I want to see, first and foremost, I think people return to school. I think we'll end up seeing um, much more productivity in the economy when uh, parents are free to actually work instead of um, at homeschooling their children. And uh, that's uh, something that I'm dealing with. Um, you know, as a parent. But then I also want to see the economy um, opened up again so we can get those uh, that, that tax revenue so we can pay for our NHS. Well, exactly right. And don't you think that uh, there should be more pressure perhaps put on uh, the prime minister from you from you guys point of view? I mean, there are already some quite vocal backbenchers, um, you know, who have said things about the lockdown and said things about lifting restrictions and trying to, to kickstart the economy. Graham Brady's among them. You know, he's talked about how his constituents in Manchester have been in lockdown pretty much for almost the entire year. Um, and yet here we are still fighting and getting record numbers of people dying. You know, and while I'm not going to say to you that lockdowns aren't uh, successful, what I am going to say to you is that they are doing an awful lot of damage as well as not necessarily stopping the death rates. Well, I think to be fair to the government, there is a, a clear understanding that uh, lockdown is not a good thing in the sense that it does have unintended consequences uh, to, of course, the economy, but to also things like mental health and, and the suffering of people. We, we're we social creatures. We want to be able to touch our loved ones. We want to be able to get back out there. We want to be able to return to normality uh, as quickly as possible. So I think there's a firm understanding of that. Um, in, in government, but it's important to do it at the right time. And the, the, the time to do that, I think, is once we've reduced that risk of death amongst uh, those those top uh, priority groups by vaccinate them, vaccinating them as quickly as possible. And once the NHS is back down to a manageable level, mm. I hope that that's as quick as possible. Uh, early March would be fantastic uh, to see the Peterborough economy open. But I think, as I say, we, we've got to make sure that we can deliver on that, or the government yeah. have to make sure. But I think what people would welcome, and I speak to an awful lot of people, as I'm sure you do, Paul, um, people would welcome actual figures, you know, because we get an awful lot of figures, but we don't get some other figures. For example, could we not see a target for uh, for when, say, for example, you can say the NHS is back under control? You know, we've been hearing now for probably the best part of the last two to three weeks that it's on the brink of being overwhelmed. And yet people are still being admitted. So I presume it's not quite overwhelmed. It's very busy, as I'm sure it is at this time of year all the time. But in the end, surely we need to have some kind of a, um, a threshold at which you say, OK, if um, on average ICU units drop back down to, say, 80 percent full, can that then be considered to be a time at which we've passed the, the threat of being overwhelmed? 
Well, I think it's uh, undoubtedly the case that the NHS is under serious pressure. We're actually seeing operations in uh, in, in London, I understand, a few weeks ago cancelled, and they, those priority operations around cancer and, and, and serious con- conditions. I don't. Uh, someone told me the other day that uh, in Peterborough City Hospital that there is not a. Um, uh, that there are COVID patients almost in every ward in Peterborough City Hospital. Yeah. So it's, it is in, incredibly um, a serious situation. But I think what, one thing the government has done throughout this pandemic is publish large uh, groups of data. And that's often given lots of people the ability to question and to, to prod the government um, in a constructive way um, in order to try and get this done as quickly as possible. So I've got a lot of sympathy with, with that view. Also, I don't think you can ever accuse this government of not being open and transparent. In fact, when they have published data, it's given uh, opposition parties and, and perhaps less friendly voices in the media the uh, ability to point to Europe and say, look, aren't we doing so badly? Mm, yeah. uh, when in fact, you know, I don't accept that's the case at all. But data and transparency, Mike, is the way to good government and holding people to account yes. so i've got a lot of sympathy with that view but also you know telling people i think what is likely to be the case is also very very good government and i think partly because of the random nature of the way that this virus spreads it's not always easy to do that but i think there would be more trust in the government and in maybe the scientists who are advising the government if they didn't just move the goalposts every couple of weeks which is what they appear to be doing now well, I think the government has been transparent when it comes to data. We're now publishing the number of people who have been vaccinated. I remember a few weeks ago, Mike, we were having a conversation amongst um, colleagues, Conservative MPs, about wanting you know, that vaccination data as, as uh, clear as possible so we can turn around and say, look, you know, this is, this is how we're getting on. These are the numbers. Uh, and it's almost like a national effort to try and get us to, a, uh, to that, that, that point. The government did then um, issue the mid-February deadline. They did then begin to publish the numbers of people vaccinated. So I think that's been an incredibly good thing. We've got over half of the uh, over 80s now vaccinated, half of social care staff vaccinated. We're pumping on through this this target. And uh, once we meet there, once we get to that target, I hope we can start to reopen as quickly as we can. But, But again, sorry to sound like a broken record, Paul. We were told back end of last year, before we got the vaccine, that the vaccine would change everything, that the vaccine would be a game changer. We were told that on the day that it was rolled out. We were told that it was going to make a difference to absolutely everybody's life. But as yet, it doesn't seem to be doing that because we're now being told it might not be as protective as we thought. You know, it might be that we still need to keep social distancing and mask wearing uh, as a general kind of principle, even though everyone's been vaccinated. So, you know, the, 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 the sands are shifting constantly. Well, I think it is a game changer because it gets us out of this wretched situation of lockdown of 2020 and the start of 2021 has done. Well, I certainly hope so, because once you um, vaccinate those who are at the biggest risk of death and, and serious illness, um, I think then you see the argument about trying to reopen again. Well, that's February the 15th, isn't it, Paul? There are going to be those, Mike, who sit there and point to things such as long COVID and we need a zero COVID strategy mm. and we need to eliminate and uninvent yeah, COVID. Yeah, we can't. I, I, don't, I don't subscribe to that view at all. I think um, life is all, all about risk. You know, you can't uninvent uh, a, di- uh, a disease. It's, mm. you know, we are going to have to learn to live with it. And if that means having to revaccinate every couple of years, uh, like we do for flu, then I don't see that as a necessarily negative thing. No. You know, we've got to get back to, we've got to get back to normal and we've got to reopen our economy so we can pay for things such as schools, our NHS and public 
services. Yes. Listen, Paul, I'm entirely in agreement with you and I'm very pleased to hear you say all those things. So let's try and work together, pressurise the government, you know, because they do need it. It's not a bad thing to pressurise them. And let's get some form uh, of a plan in place, you know, before the end of January. I think that would be what everybody would like to see. Paul Bristow, Conservative MP for Peterborough. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, I'm very encouraged by his view. I'm very encouraged by many of your tweets that have come in uh, since the show began. 
I, and I'm prepared to change direction. And in this instance, they're applying for something that they obviously think maybe they think that there's a that the construction industry will have to go on come hell or high water, and, and if they can get in amongst it, there's an opportunity there. So. I suppose that's a positive because it, sh it shows how indomitable people, some people are. Mm. Uh, but but if, if so many people are, are in so many professions are seeing no future in the in the career that they've trained for and that they've worked in previously, then that's a that's a very worrying angle. Uh, am I? I mean, that, and that's people who have skills yeah. who, who've already acquired uh, professions and, and and know the way that the the, the world of work operates. But, but uh, recently I'm talking to, we're listening to, well, my, my teenage daughter in particular, she's uh, she's 17. Mm. And obviously she's talking to lots of uh, people her own age, particularly girls. Uh, and the and the, the sentence that's coming back all the time from them, what they're saying to each other and what they're saying to their parents is, what's the point? Yeah. Now, that is desperate because I'm talking about, you know, ordinary, normal people in in the best sense of both words. People who 12 months ago were talking, who work hard at school, who are motivated or were motivated, uh, who were talking excitedly about university, about jobs, about about flats, mm. about travel. And now, not a year into that, you know, after those sort of sentiments, they're saying, what's the point? Yeah. That, now, that means that without some kind of intervention, very powerful intervention on behalf of from the authorities, the, the, the generation coming up who, who haven't worked yet and don't, you know, and, and don't have anything to fall back on, have internalised the idea that none of this is going away. Mm. You know, they don't think, my, my daughter doesn't think, her friends don't think that lockdown is ever going to stop. Yeah. They, they, they can see that it might break for a few weeks or for a few months, but they've internalised the idea that lockdown is now a fact of life. And so when it comes to thinking about going to uni, they're thinking, well, what's the point? Yeah. We'll get locked down. We'll get trapped in our halls of residence, or we'll be, or we'll be at home. They're, they're thinking about, uh, you know, look where they would have looked forward to traveling the world, or, or you know, or, or at least going abroad. They're saying, well, what's the point? Yeah. Because of lockdown, and that that is a that's insidious. That's that's a corrosive uh, frame of mind that has entered people. Now I know these. I know some of these people. Some of these girls, and they're. They were just completely positive, excited mm. about the potential of the future. And now to listen to them saying what's the point. Furthermore, I mean, my daughter knows of, of girls who've been having conversations. Actually, we're hearing it from the parents. And the parents, glassy-eyed with worry, are saying that for the first time they've actually had conversations about suicidal thoughts mm. with teenage girls who up until relatively recently were just looking forward to life. Yeah. Now, that that is a matter that has got to be addressed it really does and and it's something that i fear the government is kind of blissfully unaware of i don't think that they are deliberately unaware of it i just think they don't get it you know i was talking to somebody the other day uh, who is in and out of downing street from time to time who said basically that they don't really seem to have a firm grip on anything right now they're not really uh, you know giving the impression that they are running a very tight ship and they know precisely where it's going they're sort of sitting there waiting for something to happen and for the next wave to buffet them uh, left or right uh, or backwards. And they're not really certain of where they're even going. So I don't think they're even taking any of that sort of stuff into account. No, I've been very, I've been very uh, uh, dismayed by the, by the popularising of the, this expression, COVID denier. Yes. Because I think whoever coined that expression was deliberately trying to establish a link in the minds of people between those who deny the seriousness of COVID and mm. those who deny the Holocaust of the 20th century. Yeah. 
I, I, and to, and to invite people to, to, to bracket those two things together, I think is, is very, very wrong and, and pernicious. Mm. But I do think that there is a denial there, and, the, and the denial is there in the scientists and it's there in government that they are, they are, in, a, they are in a state of denial about the long-term reality of the situation that their measures have created. Yeah. They're, not, they're not facing up in any meaningful sense to the, when you talk about long COVID, the, the consequences economically and for people's mental health and aspiration, every other metric you could think of, is going to be the stuff of years. Mm. You know, Solzhenitsyn said, if you're cold, don't expect any sympathy from someone who's warm. And that is the fundamental problem. The people, as we've said before, who are coming up with and applying these restrictions and regulations are not really affected by them because their jobs become ever more secure, their salaries go into their account every month, their pensions are topped up, they're busy, they're they're engaged with with a project that that goes on and on and on. And because they are warm in in that Solzhenitsyn sense, they simply cannot empathize with those who have been broken by it. Now, thank goodness, I mean, I've been listening to uh, Julia Hartley Brewer and yourself speaking to uh, to those, you know, people are dotted around the country in all sorts of circumstances who are being broken or who are broken by by the lockdown restrictions. And thank goodness there's there's someone giving voice to that because sooner or later, the powers that be are going to have to face up to, to the reality of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. Because there are th- millions of them. You know, we were talking um, the other day on uh, on Twitter. I was having com- various conversations with people about, you know, the four million people who have now been vaccinated. And I said there's at least another four million, uh, possibly eight million, possibly 12 million, as far as I know, people who are being adversely affected by this terrible situation. And, you know, nobody's blaming the government for it, but they can't keep going without taking account of this kind of misery that that is befalling people. I mean, I I have a friend who has a friend whose 14-year-old tried to kill himself just before Christmas, you know, for the very same reason, you know, that they just don't see a future. And we saw the Prince's Trust uh, story that came out yesterday in which it was said that, you know, one in four children between the ages of 16 and 25, they're not really children, young adults, feels like uh, there's no way out of it. Yeah, I think that that sentence that my daughter's friends are, are, that's now become a mantra, this what's the point. I think the government and everyone else has to waken up to and really start paying attention to that state of mind because it's, it's not just... It's not, it is within the teenage population and the younger generation, but it's everywhere. Because, I mean, I think you'd be willfully naive to think that lockdown, uh, having been established as a technique that, that clearly many people are prepared to put up with, you know, there's, you know, there's the furlough and all the rest of it that, that, that's functioning to make people tolerant of, mm. of lockdown. I think you'd be willfully naive if you thought that that, that, te- that technique, that, that option is going to go away. Mm. Anytime there's a virus, and there will be more viruses, anytime there's an outbreak of, of this, that, or the next contagion, lockdown will be in the arsenal. Now, if you're someone who's, who, who previously would have thought, uh, I'm going to open that restaurant, or I'm going to open that barber shop, or I'm going to open that garage, and I'm going to employ people, and I'm going to, you know, we're, we're going to have a future that we're in control of, we'll be self-employed and all the rest of it. For so many people now, no sooner will that thought appear in their minds, but they will think, but what's the point? because you would make all the investment, you would make all the effort, you'd employ people, and then all of a sudden, six months of lockdown. Your staff would be away, your premises would be closed. What's the point? Now, we know that the 
the, the public sector, the, everything that we depend upon, the, the, the NHS, education, people picking up the bins, all of it depends on the private sector that, that creates the money that can be taxed, that the Treasury can then use in a, in a, in a real sense to, to fund everything else. And if the only people who are, who are in any way inclined to go to work are in the public sector, then the, 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 then there will not be the new money. Mm. You know, we only recently paid off the debt for the Second World War. Right. You know, we've been paying as taxpayers for the Second World War until until the last couple of years before we finally got that off the books. Mm. And, and the, now we've got a hundred years of debt for COVID. And the only way, you know, it's all very well to have the pretend money that they create by changing the numbers on computer screens in banks that they, you know that they can dole out in the short term. But in order to get the real money that will be, that they can tax that will actually begin to eat into that debt that's going to be glowing red hot for a century or more is, it, is from the private sector. And, and that, that ennui has set in in the private sector, I would have thought, where so many people who previously would have embarked upon a self-employed business are saying to themselves and to their husbands and wives, what's the point? Yes. I've been staggered, actually, by the resilience, in a way, of so many of the businesses that are still continuing to go on and who are trying in many ways to, to, to kind of, you know, to be more agile about trying to make money in a different way. A lot of restaurant businesses doing takeaways, that kind of thing. But, you know, they've just been bashed from pillar to post. And, and I don't think that if they're talking about, they're now talking very casually this morning about April the 2nd. I mean, that's 72 more days of this. Without schooling, without your kids really going anywhere out, out the door, you know, you can't really do anything. I mean, all you can do really uh, is take them for a walk in the park, right? I, I'll be honest with you, Mike, and this is just my opinion. I don't expect my kids to go to school this this term, right. uh, this year. I, I, you know, once we get to this, what would what would have been the summer holidays and then, mm. you know, come August and whatever, that's that's another year. But I don't, in all honesty, expect any of my kids to go to school this year. Mm. So, you know, so that's right up into, you know, into June and June, July. Yeah, right. I, honestly, and beyond, and beyond, I don't see any, any likelihood of that situation changing. Unless there's a massive, a massive change of direction from the people at the top. Uh, to me, the, the government and the, and the scientists who, who, who they prefer to take advice from, they haven't got the... The, the the wit and the wisdom to accept that what they've been doing hasn't been right. Mm. The, the lockdown strategy hasn't worked, but they will not back away from it. I mean, all the best scientists throughout history, the Einsteins, the James Clerk Maxwells, they were famous for their willingness, almost their enthusiasm to talk about their mistakes. Yeah. You know, when, I, when Einstein would take a new job somewhere, Amongst the basic things that he would ask for, he wanted he always wanted a great big waste paper bin <laughs> into which he could do all of his mistakes. Right. I, I wear a suit of armour made only of my mistakes. You know, mis having taken the wrong path and then having the, the wit and the wisdom and the maturity to change direction in order to rectify your mistake is what being a, a functioning member of society is all about. Mm. But at the moment, I see that the government and the scientists that are advising them are just bloody-mindedly persevering with a set of regulations and a set of restrictions that haven't done what they said they could do. And I think the denial, another element of the denial, is that they thought they could beat, eradicate COVID-19. And they still talk mm. sometimes about zero COVID. Yeah, they do. And this, this very morning we heard it from, from, from the Tory MP we were talking to. You know, and he, fortunately, is more like you and I, doesn't think that that is an achievable aim. Of course it's not an achievable aim. You know, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's up there with when did we start imagining that we could get uh, re reduce a new a new virus to zero? 
And, and when did the when did the lawmakers think that they could get 100% compliance mm. on any law? It, it just doesn't happen. It, it, we live in an imperfect world. And the, the dangerous denial is the fact that COVID is here to stay. And it's going to mutate because viruses mutate. And if, if all the government and the, and the scientists can think to do is, is whenever they feel the necessity so to do, to lock down the country for months on end, mm. then you're going to perpetuate this, this, this attitude, this burgeoning attitude of what's the point. Yes. And I agree with you. There are so many people out there who have doggedly, doggedly kept themselves in the game. We've got, we're surrounded by businesses that have been as flexible as any yogi, bending over backwards to find new ways to, to, you know, to turn an honest coin. And every time they look as if they've, they've established a path that's going to get them out of it, that avenue is blocked mm. again. And these are people who already had established businesses. Yes. The, the other aspect that I'm talking about are the, are the people coming up who are going to embark on first jobs who would have opened first businesses. Now, they don't have any kind of reservoir of experience to fall back upon. They don't have a, a, a business that, however battered it might be now, that the foundations of it are or, or were mm. still there. Right. It, it's the people... It's my children coming through into a world hobbled by the concept of lockdown that I'm worried about. Because yes. I don't think lockdown's going anywhere. Mm. In the same way that I don't think the virus is going anywhere. Right. And also the logic uh, of what you might have regarded as science in the past seems to have been turned on its head. Because what we have is a collection of scientists who don't know the answers to an awful lot of the questions that we put to them about the virus. I mean, I have a doctor on pretty much every day of the week on this show. And when you say to them, you know, does the vaccine work on every single um, variant of the coronavirus? They're not sure. You know, if you are detecting a virus in Brazil uh, and one in Kent and one in South Africa that are all different from the one that was already here, will there be more? We don't know. The only thing they can be sure about is that the lockdown damages people and damages mental health and damages economies and damages lives. But they don't seem to care about that part of the fact where they only really care about the bit that they don't know about. Well, it's it's that it's just that analogy again about, you know, if you're if you're warm, you can't empathize with somebody who's cold. Mm. You know, like, you know, you can if you're in the lifeboat, you can't you don't really listen to the complaints of the people that are thrashing about in the water. The, the people that are making the, the that, are, that are that are choreographing everything that we're doing at the moment are not affected by the consequences, or or not anywhere near the, the kind of level of, of of effect and consequence that other people out there are suffering. And you know, if you if you turn, I'm not suggesting you should, but if if you stopped furlough tomorrow, this the, the situation would turn on a, would, would turn on a, 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 you know, would turn 180 degrees. Mm. For for as long as a, as a large part of the population are, are are content that they can keep going, that they can survive, then they will continue to turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to those that can't. Yes. But, but then that is what that's what furlough and lockdown are all about. It's about keeping a demoralised you know population indoors, obeying the regulations as far as possible. Uh, you know. Well, well, government and scientists you know, continue to prosecute a war that is only attritional. Mm. And this is the thing, you know, I started the show this morning by saying there is a kind of, I don't want to use the word normality because it's not what I want to say, but there is a kind of acceptance now uh, of the way things are. People wake up in the morning, they do whatever they were doing yesterday. If it means going to the supermarket, uh, if it means that they can work because they drive a van, or if it means that they can go to a job of work, or if it means that they go into their living room and work from home, 
people have kind of accepted their lot, it seems to me, because they can see now that it's going to be like this for a while. I know, we were out, my family, we were out walking the dog, um, which is our, you know, outside exercise. And uh, my wife said, hands up, who wants to uh, go to Nando's and then go to the cinema? You know, <laughs> and we you know, and I mean, what a, what a modest, what a modest ambition that yes. was for a, you know, a Saturday afternoon, you know, to go and eat some chicken and then go and see a, whatever, a Marvel, an Avengers movie at the cinema. Yeah. And well, you know, the thought, the thought of that, it was like somebody had dangled, you know, a, you know, a lottery win <laughs> in, in front of them. Yeah. It was Nando's cinema. You think, well, oh, we'll never do that again. Those I know. days are behind. I know. And it is strange, isn't it, how your mind works? I mean, you would have heard, I'm sure, Julia this morning talking to the, uh, the woman who just before uh, I came on, talking about her mother, who was terrified of going out to the supermarket because she thought she might be breaking the law. And I think, you know, you and I, Neil, probably take, uh, take it as read that we are contrarians. We're not going to do what we're told by anybody in any situation. But an awful lot of people are frightened to break the law. Yeah, there's a, there's a, the, the generation above, you know, my sort of, my in-laws and, and my, my parents, uh, what is, what is almost surreal is the way that there's a, there's a, an extent to which they're not worried about, they are worried about the virus. I mean, we've all, everyone's aware of the virus, but what they're really worried about is getting into trouble. Yeah. <laughs> you know, my, you know, my mum-in-law isn't, her, her uppermost concern is not that if she goes out, she might catch COVID-19 and get ill and possibly die. Right worry is that she breaks the law or that she gets us into trouble by by inadvertently mm. turning up at our door and, and, and you know, or whatever you know that's her concern she's worried about getting ill although she knows that that's a possibility mm. but far closer to the forefront of her concerns yes. is just that is the, is the fact that she might you know break the law it's becoming kafka-esque i know and it but really is it, and it really world. is not surprising but given how much of it has been going on and how many people uh, have said the things that they've said, you know. I mean, we've got adverts running uh, on our own station that say, if you bend the rules, people will die. You know, I find that quite extraordinary. Yes, but uh, for me, as a, as a parent, I mean, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm 53, I, 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 you know, and I, so I, I've, I've weighed up the risks that, that my demographic put me in. And I, that's fine by me. I'm not, I'm not bothered. But the, my children... Because I, I see what's being laid now is not something short term. We're, we're no longer dealing with an emergency. A, a new, I dread to, I hate using the expression, but a new normal has been established. And it's made of fear. It's made of uh, a, a, a necessity to accept that we're, we're never going to, uh, you know, get beyond this virus and lockdown. And my children, you know, teenagers and, and one who's, who's 12, are, are looking at us and talking to us about severely limited aspirations and ambitions. Mm. You know, where, where just months ago, they were all talking excitedly about, you know, driving lessons and, you know, maybe buying a first car yeah. and, you know, getting a job, you know, getting a, getting a part-time job, saving up a bit of money, going to university, having exciting careers, traveling the world. That's gone now. You know, they talk about, you know, my, my youngest comes up to us and says, do you think it would be okay if I went over to the park? Yeah. And by park, he means a patch of green, right. that, you know, that we can see from our front window. Right. You know, that's how narrow his, that's how, that's how foreshortened his yeah. horizons have come. And my, my daughter talking to her friends who previously were talking about, some of them were talking about going to New York to study, you know, in that way that yeah. teenagers, you know, 
the biggest dreams in the world. You know, anything's anything's possible. They're going to go to Juilliard and study, you know, whatever music and all the rest of it. Or they were people were going to go to France and and live and study there. And now, now they're just, uh, you know, worried about whether or not they'll have a good enough uh, uh, broadband connection to to do their, their yeah. PSE class that they've got mm-hmm. between ten and eleven. It's absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, I've got a, as you have. I've done all these things. I've been to university. I've had great jobs. I've got a great job. I've travelled. I've been in. I've been everywhere, you know. And I've got that to draw upon. You know, that's part of me, yeah. and I can line think about it. But if you're a, if you're a kid who's, you know, who's who's just about to be on the springboard into life, and now you've already internalised the idea that you're not going anywhere. And even if you get a place at university, you're just going to be looking at a screen the way that you're looking at a screen to do your schoolwork. Mm. I mean, what kind of enervating toll, what kind of consequences is that going to have on the aspirations that we all depend upon? I mean, for a country to keep moving forward into the future, you need an, asp- an, an inspired set of youngsters coming through who are excited and fizzing you know, fizzing, you know, you, you, when you're that age, you're absolutely fizzing with the enthusiasm about what lies ahead. And if you've already had all of that gone flat before you've even left school, then that is a dangerous inertia that has been established at the heart of the country. And the, the, the powers that be better start facing up to that. And it's not about being defeatist. They have to turn it around because it's never too late. You know, if you're still standing, you're still in the game. And somebody has got to find the the means to boost morale, to inspire, and to admit that continually locking people down for months and years is going to break the country permanently. They have to have the confidence to say, we're not going to do this again. You're we right. did it. We did it for the best of reasons, but it didn't work. And we promise you, with our hands on the on the Bible and, and every other holy book, that we're not going to do that again. No. Whatever happens next, we're going to try something different. Yeah, that has to be the way. Neil, thank you so much. What a great speech to end up with. We're out of time, unfortunately. We're over time, in fact. I'm getting the evil eyes from uh, Marta behind the glass there. But brilliant. Absolutely brilliant speech. Absolutely brilliant sentiment. That's what we all feel. That's what we all need. And that's what we need the government to do. For heaven's sake, get on with it, will you? This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the independent republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Mark Dolan is on at four o'clock with Drive. Of course, that will be bringing you live uh, the inauguration of Joe Biden from Washington, D.C., which they say has been uh, so uh, sort of strengthened and fortified that it's just like the Civil War. Well, doesn't sound great to me, I have to say. The Civil War was a very long time ago. It's not like some scene from Gone with the Wind, for heaven's sake. Uh, also, of course, Kevin O'Sullivan is in for uh, Ian Collins at one o'clock. Kevin and I and Dawn Neeson recorded Plank of the Week yesterday. You'd be very pleased to know that there's some very interesting names on there. Let's go to the phones, though. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Uh, Ryan is in the New Forest. Hello, Ryan. Uh, good, good morning, sir. Pleasure. How's it going? How's the old painting business going in the pandemic lockdown? If I'm honest, in the I've done one wallpapering job since uh, possibly the end of November, maybe something like that, middle mm, of November. Blimey! So, so not not a That's lot. That's tough. I'm, then. I'm, are you are you getting it, by? Okay. 
Yeah, I, 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 well, I've had the government furlough money, which okay. is keeping my head above water. We, we're not actually doing anything, so mm. um, you'd be surprised how much uh, things like kids' clubs and things that they don't do anymore actually mm. um, saves you money. I mean, because, you know, we are hitting our bills now. And yeah. my partner got made redundant as well right. um, at the end, uh, end of November, I think okay. it was. So, right. so we're, um, yeah, so we, we are... Well, we're we're, fairly, we're getting through, but we're not we're Good. not unhappy. If you know what I mean? Well, I mean the um, thing is, there's always ways of of being optimistic, but and I appreciate that you are one of those people. But and there are always people worse off than you. But but it's it's tough out there. It is. It's very tough. I mean, the thing is, is that I was a lockdown skeptic in the sense that I always thought that there could be better ways of running it whilst keeping the economy going. Yeah. Um, I've been on here many times, many many times before with you about the capitalist thing. I feel that we are e capitalism is heading at, at, at end game is some sort of forced communism because mm. it, there's no way that it could not be because once all the money and the uh, opportunity is gone, which it will eventually go um, because it's dictated by you know shifting um, industries, so we're going to have less jobs going forward. So we're going to have to support these people. And my my thing is with with it is that. I, it's not so much that we should curb capitalism going up. You can earn as much money as you like. That's fine. Sky's the limit. But I think that we really have to look at a baseline limit now um, that people cannot fall below. Because when something like a pandemic happens, it shows up all the frailties of the, of the way we run our society normally. Sure. But the thing is, there's there's no way to square that circle, in my view, Ryan, because you cannot have a massive public sector uh, and a tiny private sector because it just doesn't make economic sense because you need the private sector to pay for the public sector. So I'm not sure um, where that kind of circle gets squared. I think, you know, I take your point. I don't agree with it and I don't think we're going in that direction. I think uh, we are sort of more likely to be the clattering train that is being run by people who don't know where they're going rather than people who are steering us in a particular direction. Well, I, yeah, I, 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 I mean, that is sort of like fanciful, if you like. But I mean, it's, it's sort of like, really, it's just that's just taking into account what I've watched when I look at things like science. And, mm. you know, if you look at these top scientists like Elon Musk and people, they would say, we're going to make life incredibly easy for a certain section of society, Sue. And to a point where it's going to be, if, it's, if you can afford it, you're going to live illustriously. And if you can't, you're going to be like, you know... Uh, well, who knows? I mean, it, hopefully it's not going to be as low as what... But again, I mean, look at look at what Elon Musk is doing. Elon Musk is, is developing incredibly uh, efficient ways of getting into space. What's he doing that for if he doesn't want people to go to space? If he's going to pr- create this hyperlink, which is going to get you from, you know, one side of San Francisco down to the other side of San Diego in sort of 1.3 nanoseconds, you know, what's the point of that if you don't ever want to go anywhere? Well, this is it. I mean, and, and we, we need to have an industry behind it. I mean, it, it, uh, <coughs> sorry, an economy behind it. I mean, for it to be useful. I mean, I'd just like to say quickly that that said, I've been a lockdown skeptic the whole time, self-employed, I run a business, it's taken a massive hit, my partner's been made redundant, I said that at the start. Yeah. That said, my stepfather, or I, I'm considering my father, he's raised me since I was 14 years old, he has just come out of intensive care three mm. days ago. He was in it for, um, <clears throat> he's 64 years old, he's a big fella, but I wouldn't have said that he was vulnerable in the slightest. Right. He, got, he was one of eight people that got it at Christmas after someone went out for a meal five days before, legally distanced and everything, but the people at the mill come uh, tested positive, and then days later, the person wasn't tested positive by the time that Christmas Day had come. So therefore, yeah. he gave it to eight people Christmas Day. My stepfather got it the worst, and he, it, it was literally touch and go last week. I yeah. mean, I was... I was, I was just about to, you know, uh, we, we were prepared for the worst. And right. now, luckily, hopefully, he'll be out of well, that's uh, good. hospital at the end of the week. So there you are. Oh, that's, an, that's an absolute example of what Christmas did to some people. And, and some people, unfortunately, have been unlucky like that, Ryan. Um, but you can't really know for sure how much of that has happened, can you? 
no, no, exactly. That's the thing. But I think that if, if you apply basic common sense to it, that we need to have a lockdown for the science of it. But for the economy side of it, we need to have something else put in yeah. place that we haven't got yet. No, listen, I, I, think, I think the two can go hand in hand. There's no question about that because they've tried it before with the tier system. I didn't actually think the tier system was a bad thing because it seemed to work in lots of different ways. But, you know, this complete and utter lockdown, I think, is very, very damaging to so many people, not least school children, not least young people. But, Ryan, listen, I've got to run. Good to talk to you. Great to hear from you. And I'm so glad that uh, your father, stroke stepfather, got through it. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a good example. You know, and none of us uh, are still going to sit here and say that this is something that should not be taken seriously. Of course it should. There's a guy who infected eight people at a Christmas dinner table uh, and one of them almost lost his life. Of course it's a serious situation, but it's also a serious situation for an awful lot of other people who have been obeying the rules, who have got businesses that they could run in a COVID-safe way and who could be given some form of hope that the economy and their livelihoods will be able to return at some point to normal. And we need to know that. We need to have that. Uh, we need to have that roadmap. We need to have that uh, diary. We need to know. If it is going to be April the 2nd, let it be April the 2nd. Let it happen. 72 days. We can start counting down now. And right now we're going to do some homeschooling, of course, because we started this way back when uh, in March of last year to help out parents who might be struggling uh, to teach their kids all the way through the day because the younger the children are, the more difficult it is for an awful lot of parents. And today I'm delighted uh, to say we're going to be joined uh, by the senior lecturer in the history of China and Eastern Asia at SOAS at the University of London, uh, Dr. Lars Larman. Very good uh, afternoon to you, Lars. Thank you for joining us. Yes, good afternoon. And um, of course, we're talking about a lockdown or a lock out, a lock in. Uh, the Great Wall of China is part of that project, but uh, of course, uh, not uh, built for COVID conditions. No, indeed. Well, interesting that we're doing the Great Wall of China because it's one of those uh, sort of wonders of the world, I suppose, for want of a better description, that not a lot of people know very much about. I mean, I've, I've never been fortunate enough to walk on the Great Wall of China. It's one of those things that I'd like to do, uh, you know, before I, I disappear off, the, off this earth of ours. Uh, but tell us about uh, the history of it, how it was uh, started, whose idea was it, and why was it built? Well, in China, you have the saying that um, if you're a good Chinese, a good Han Chinese, then you've climbed the Great Wall. And uh, of course, if you um, do that today, then you get a ticket and it will uh, display this uh, little phrase that you're a good, good Chinese person. Why? Because it has come to symbolize the unity of China. Um, and that goes back at least 2000 years now. It was... Um, constructed out of the um, individual walls that the so-called warring states uh, had against each other, but then also against nomadic populations in the north. And if you go to go back into the first uh, millennium, so let's say um, the year 300, 400 BC, uh, you will find that um, instead of one united China, you had up to 30 different uh, states that were warring against each other. And in the end, that had um, whittled down to about seven or eight. And um, they were constantly at war with each other. That's why the period uh, up to 220 BC is called the Warring States period. Right. And um, in that period, you had uh, more successful and less successful states. And the most successful state was the um, the state of Qin, uh, uh, 
transliterated QIN, and uh, that's of course where neighboring states, neighboring countries, neighboring peoples got, got the name China from, because um, it comes from the first emperor of Qin, who then becomes the first emperor of the United Qin, which is the first emperor of China ah. in the year 220 BC. It's a fascinating structure as well, because it doesn't look like they did anything to kind of um, make it easy for themselves. They built it over some very arduous terrain um, and they haven't tried to sort of go around mountains. They've just gone right over them, right? That's correct. Yes. So what the um, uh, individual states, but especially the first Qin emperor did, was to put the, the walls up as extension of as extensions of the mountains that it was uh, climbing over. So in other words, you have a fence and then on top of the, you have a natural fence and then on top of that fence, you have a, a wall. So it makes it um, additionally difficult for any intruder to uh, climb in. But mm. who were these intruders? Uh, well, uh, the Qin would have been the first ones because they came from outside or just sort of the border regions of uh, what we understand China to be. So, um, China in the early days meant all the civilizations that were united by Chinese official culture, call it Confucianism, call it, you know, a uh, kind of writing system which was uh, unified by uh, um, a number of codes and rituals, and by agriculture. And these were populations who uh, had um, perhaps sheep, who simply went into the fields of the Chinese farmers and the uh, the, the rulers of uh, early China wanted to keep them out. That was the main uh, pre preoccupation. In later centuries, um, wh when the wall was relevant, because that wasn't the case all the time, it had another function, and that was to protect the so-called Silk Route or the Silk Roads mm. that went just in the shadow of the Great Wall. So in other words, th this Great Wall had a, a function of protecting the trade links of China with the outside world, and uh, and that's something that's overlooked because in the um, common understanding, it's a, a wall which uh, is simply meant to keep out uh, foreigners. Um, message to the outgoing president: um, uh, such great walls don't work, and the Great Wall of China was a complete failure in that uh, respect because uh, we have wonderful stories, documents, for example, from the Ming period, so in the uh, 16th century how um, the Mongol intruder simply climbed over the wall mm. and if they fell down at the other end, they weren't entitled to any compensation because they weren't supposed to do that. Right. But um, it's um, as a defense structure, it was less important than uh, as one that kept uh, bandits away from the trade routes inside China. And so as far as the kind of defense of the wall was concerned, there weren't many, many soldiers on it at all times and ac across the whole length of it. It was quite often presumably just deserted, was it? Uh, yes, although um, the um, wall has regular uh, towers and these towers functioned as communication points mm. because each tower would communicate with the next tower by a system of um, smoke and fire. So they could always um, uh, notify the um, soldiers a few kilometers down the the wall uh, when um, uh, intruders were sighted. And that's uh, another function. It was 
part of the central nervous system of the uh, of the Chinese empires that they could basically detect uh, uh, approaching armies mm. from far away. Right. But um, once again, uh, that was no guarantee that they could actually keep them out. No, of course. And what about the materials that were used? Because it's uh, incredibly long. Um, I don't think you've told us yet exactly how long it is. No, but No, it's uh, in Chinese, it's called the one yi chang chang. So it's the, the 10,000 miles. And a, a Chinese mile is about half a kilometer. So that, that takes you down to about uh, five or 6,000 kilometers. But um, it, it's uh, you shouldn't take that literally. Mm. It, it's it's about um, if and also it's not that simple. There's more than just one wall. In some uh, parts, you have parallel walls because they were supposed to protect trade routes. And right. when the trade routes changed, the wall changed. Right. So um, uh, somebody added up the entire length of all the walls together and arrived at a figure of twenty one thousand kilometers. Wow. Um, that's uh, a so very that, long wall, something. isn't it? That's amazing. And, uh, yes. And um, anyway, uh, c coming back to the materials, um, that was always local material. So you'll see that uh, if you go to the extreme east, uh, to Shanghai Guan, which is uh, where the wall meets the sea, the, the Japanese sea, basically, yeah. or high sea, um, the, the material would have been uh, the same type of rocks that uh, were uh, at home in the nearby mountains. If you were in the mountain, uh, sorry, if you were in the desert uh, at the other end, they would use um, uh, stones that were much more porous. In some cases, they would just use um, a, a compacted soil. Mm. So in other words, a brick, a bricks made out of um, mud that had the same durability until it rained. And so in other words, some sections of the wall are, are very much eroded uh, because they used building material that weren't that durable. Yes. So parts of it, I guess, are in are in ruins, but you can still walk along quite large portions of it. And I guess finally, uh, Dr. Lars, because I could we could talk about it all day because it's got so many interesting facets to it. But as far as the kind of borders of China are concerned, it doesn't really mark those, does it? It marks the borders of what is often referred to as China proper. Right. I don't like the term because there's no improper China. But the, um, <laughs> well, some people the, might argue with you about that. Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> it's the it's the provinces where you have Han Han Chinese majorities. Mm. So in pop, in terms of population, um, and then it goes to a point in the west, uh, which is known as Dunhuang. That's the name of the city, and uh, that place has a has a gate which is can be regarded as the gateway to China. It's about halfway through um, the, the map of the People's Republic of China, if you look at it today. Um, and that was always the case because um, the Han Empire, the Tang Empire, Ming Empire, they all had borders which went far, far, far beyond the uh, population uh, centers of, uh, of China. And uh, at this point, you had a, a mixture of populations. So they would Basically, um, you, you would have um, uh, monks from India, from Tibet, from all sorts of uh, places in Central Asia, uh, from Iran, from uh, from the Mediterranean even. Um, and um, that, that was very normal. So um, if you keep in mind that China is always a cosmopolitan place, and one of the symbols of this cosmopolitan nature of China in history uh, is actually the Great Wall. So it doesn't actually keep foreigners out. It protects the foreigners who make their way along the Silk Route. 
Absolutely. Well, fascinating stuff. Dr. Lars Lahman, thank you very much indeed for talking to us and explaining all of that uh, and showing us some of those uh, great uh, sort of illustrations as well. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.